Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Well, it was fantastic to be back at the University of British Columbia. Uh, last time I was here, almost 20 years ago, um, I was uh, leading the uh, QP227A teaching assistance strike uh, that was blockading the campus uh, because we've been legislated back to work and we were on a legal strike. So it's, it's great to be back. Um, they've changed a lot, uh, but uh, it's good that we're sort of retying, retying the knot of uh, working class struggle at uh, UBC. Now, I'm speaking today on the causes of capitalist crisis. And, uh, and so hopefully I'll, I'll be giving a Marxist explanation for the causes of capitalist crisis. But uh, there are other explanations uh, for what causes capitalist crisis. And if, uh, if, you, if you're at UBC and you're doing a first year economics class, uh, the answer to this question is there is no capitalist crisis. Capitalism is a perfect system. It is a system of equilibrium the best allocation of goods and services ever imagined. And everything's great right now, isn't it? Right? Because everybody feels great right now. Yes? Yes? No? No. No, it's not great. Uh, but by, in theory, supposedly, by the, uh, uh, the theory of, that's taught in universities, it is great. It's supposed to be you know, supply, it's supposed to be balance with demand. Uh, and everything tends towards equilibrium. Um, actually, one, uh, I think, a Nobel Prize winner in economics uh, once said that uh, capitalism is not an equilibrium system. It is a wrecking ball, right? The, the system is a chaotic system. It is a system of crisis. Uh, equilibrium is not the model. The model is earthquakes and hurricanes. And, and chaos theory, in a, in a way. That is what explains the functioning of the capitalist system. And the best work for understanding capitalism is, was written about 150 years ago, Das Kapital, from Karl Marx. It is really the only consistently scientific explanation of capitalism. I see the irony that the sort of greatest work of uh, Marxism is in fact an analysis of capitalism. It's not about socialism at all. It's about capitalism. And, and I'm going to try and sort of summarize the ideas of Marx on why capitalism enters into crisis, why we aren't all happy right now, why there isn't full employment, why wages aren't keeping track with inflation, why working class people are working harder and harder and harder and harder and getting further behind. Have you ever thought about that? Since the 1970s, productivity per worker, I think it's about 70% higher than it was in the 1970s. Like every worker today, when they press a button or move a crank or do, does something, produces 1.7 times what a worker did in the 1970s. So, by the logic of uh, equilibrium, the logic of capitalism, 
we should all be 1.7% or was it 170% wealthier? I don't think we are. In fact, the statistics show that standard of living has stagnated over the last 40 years and in fact is going down currently. That's the situation. And that also has psychological impact that young people, people of your generation, have never known a capitalism that improves standards of living. In fact, it's, you know, it's been practically two generations since anybody felt better off under capitalism. And that has psychological and revolutionary impacts that people, you know, they don't see this system working for them. They don't see the system working for them. And that's why they come to meetings like this. They come to meetings of the international Marxist tendency of fight back to figure out why, why capitalism is a system of crisis. Enrique, do you mind passing me my, that bottle of water? Thanks. Cheers. So, why, so what's the basis of this? Well, workers, Marx explained that workers aren't paid for the labour that they do. Workers aren't paid, if workers work 8, 10, 12 hours a day, the value of that 8, 10, 12 hours is not encompassed by their wages because they're not paid for the labour that they do. Workers are paid for their ability to work. It's a uh, quantity known as labour power in Marxist terminology. And, and Marx explains that value is socially necessary human labour. That really everything that is exchanged in the market, in the capitalist market, is exchanged on average relative to the amount of human labour that's contained within it. Right. All, all other theories of value are really subjective. They're quite fantastical, right? They're not anything that you can objectively analyze. So you have the uh, of, you have other ideas. It is essentially subjective theories of value. The only really scientific one is a labor theory of value. And Marx didn't actually invent this. This was invented. Well, actually, anybody knows who, who was one of the main proponents of the labor theory of value? No? Adam Smith. Adam Smith, supposedly you know, the guru of the right-wing capitalist uh, uh, politicians, yeah, Adam Smith, he's the one who actually predominantly came up with the labour theory of value. Marx took on what Adam Smith and Ricardo said about the labour theory of value and developed it and took it to its logical conclusions. Uh, and, and that's why in the economics that's taught in universities, they actually try to stay away from Adam Smith, what Adam Smith actually said, because it can't, if you logically follow the train of thought, you end up with Marxism, right? And so they don't like that. So uh, now it's sort of a very vulgar understanding of economics. But workers are only paid the labour power. They're only paid for their ability to work, basically, subsistence, education, reproduction of the family, and a moral amount in every society. 
And the, the basket of goods that encompasses those four things is not as much as the value, the total hours of labor uh, that the worker puts in every day. And the part that the worker is not paid, the unpaid labor of the working class, well, that goes to the capitalists in terms of profits. Surplus value is what it's known as. Surplus value. Anyway, I, there's a lot of analysis of surplus value. I just wanted to briefly introduce the concept because it's a vital part of why capitalism enters into crisis. Well, there's a contradiction here. Workers have made all this stuff, but they're not paid the value of that stuff. So workers are incapable of buying back all the stuff that they've made. Think about it. Let's say Canadian GDP is approximately $2 trillion and workers' wages is about $1 trillion. There's $1 trillion worth of stuff that the workers cannot buy back. Right? That is an inherent contradiction. That's an inherent contradiction, which actually, if on the face of it, you would ask yourself, not why does capitalism enter into crisis, but why does capitalism have, ever have a boom? Because that contradiction exists right from day one. The workers cannot buy back the stuff that they have just made, right? There, there is the inherent contradiction of the system. And, and that, that is the, the fundamental basis of why capitalism enters into crisis. But it doesn't do so every day. It doesn't do so immediately. Capitalism moves in, in a boom-slump cycle. Boom-slump cycle. Approximately every 10 years, right? There was a crisis uh, during COVID which was also a crisis of overproduction. It wasn't just a COVID crisis. It was all, it was actually beginning even before COVID hit. And then there was a crisis in 2008, 2009. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest crises in the history of capitalism. And then there was a crisis around 2000. And there was a crisis in 91. And there was a crisis around uh, uh, 80, 80 to 82, I think, I think. And then prior to that, was the, the oil crisis of 1974. Right. A lot of times these uh, crises have got uh, sort of names attached to them, right? Oil crisis, COVID crisis, the, uh, the dot-com slump, stuff like that, the subprime mortgage slump, right? And, and there's this belief that that's what caused the crisis, when in fact, that's really the trigger. Capitalism inherently builds up contradictions. Uh, the political choices of the capitalist leadership uh, leads to these contradictions being worse in one area than another area. And it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the, the weakest link of the chain is the thing that goes. And, and, but then it brings the whole system down. Right? Now, Colt, now, COVID exacerbated the crisis of overproduction that was already in preparation in the last few years. But uh, without COVID, there would have still been a crisis. It would have been triggered by something else. Right? Uh, that is the inherently unstable nature of capitalism. Okay, so how do 
uh, the capitalists start being in perpetual crisis. Well, I, I gave you that example. What two trillion dollar GDP, one trillion for wages, but there's a, an extra trillion dollars sloshing around. What do the capitalists do with that extra trillion dollars? Well, they buy yachts, they buy private jets, they you know, buy luxuries. But really, there's only so much fun that they can have. The uh, the majority of that is reinvested into revolutionising the productivity, into new machinery, new technique, expanding production. Also, export, export of capital that uh, get it, building factories, new machinery in China or Indonesia or Mexico or or wherever, uh, exploiting cheap labour, raw materials in in other markets. That's the basis of imperialism. In fact, uh, this coming weekend in Edmonton, We've got uh, the, the third Marxist school. We've got over 100 people signed up. And the theme of the weekend's discussions is imperialism. That's the basis of imperialism, that capital is exported and then capitalist governments back that up with military power to protect their foreign investments. But this is a vital part of the functioning of capitalism is that export capital in foreign markets and also reinvestment into improving the productivity of labour, improving machinery. Uh, and so for, that, for, for a period, they, this process of the cycle of capital accumulation, they can avoid crisis. Right? And, uh, and Marx talked about Department 1 and Department 2 in the economy. Uh, department one is the means of consumption, the wages of the workers, and department two is the means of production, reinvestment, right? And uh, and so yes, portion goes into food, and clothing, and housing, and, uh, and and the stuff and education, the stuff that uh, working class people need to live. That's part one, and and the other stuff goes into machinery, stuff that workers don't buy. It's only bought by capitalists. You know, when's the last time you bought a factory? Hands up. You know, who's lately bought a factory? Nobody? Nobody? Oh, that's a shame. I was hoping for a good donation. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but here's the problem. Here is the problem. You know, the capitalists invest in better machinery. Better production technique, and and actually the, the first capitalist to do that gets an advantage over all the other capitalists. He's more efficient, right? He can. He's got his workers have got a pre- better productivity of labour. He can outcompete all the other capitalists. He can undersell them, or only undersell them by a little bit because his commodities contain less labor than everybody else does. So he under underprices his commodities from the market price, but he actually overprices them relative to the actual labor contained in them because it's more efficiently produced. And so he gets a super period, he gets a super profit. 
And then all the other capitalists are forced to either go bankrupt or follow suit or get taken over by the sort of the new, uh, more innovative capitalist, right? That's the logic. But what happens here? By this process, the, you know, there is, well, there's less labor contained in all these commodities. There's an increased productivity of labor, but there are fewer workers. Fewer workers produce more stuff. So they make more and more workers unemployed, right? So this is why since the 1970s, there's been massive improvements in productivity and the workers are worse off. We are worse off because of the logic of capitalism. It's a totally irrational system. As there is progress, people are worse off, unless you're a capitalist, of course, right? That's a, uh, Marx talked about capitalism being a system of the concentration of wealth at one pole and the concentration of misery and degradation at another. Now, if I was giving this uh, talk in the 1960s, you'd probably think I was a crazy person for saying that because standard of living did increase in the 50s and 60s. But today, with stagnation and polarization and slump and poverty, uh, everything I'm saying makes perfect sense to everybody because it corresponds to material reality. Right. So the, the, the capitalist invests more in production. And what does that mean? It's not just more efficient, they can produce more and more and more and more and more. And the, the productive capacity goes up and up and up and up. Now here, here's a problem. The productive capacity is going up at the same time as they're laying off workers. Who's buying all this extra stuff they're producing? Now they can funnel it back into better productivity. They can export more abroad, but eventually there has to be somebody buying this stuff. There has to be real human beings buying the stuff. Eventually it all comes back to department one. It all comes back to consuming the means of consumption, things people actually need and want, right? Uh, and so that there you see the inherent contradiction. And yes, I, I talked about uh, there's more and more production through revolutionizing the means of production. But in terms of foreign export, well, what happens then? All right, it's a new market. Great. New market. Build factories in China. What happens to those factories? They start producing stuff. They get more efficient. They start producing a surplus. It exacerbates the crisis of overproduction on a world scale. Right? This is right from the Communist Manifesto. How do the capitalists get out of the crisis? I'm paraphrasing from memory. Uh, you can look up the quote yourself. How do the capitalists get out of crisis? Merely by exacerbating the future crisis and, uh, and eliminating the means by which future crises are resolved. This is the fundamental crisis of overproduction that uh, Marx and Engels explained how the laws for productive capacity increase in the uh, geometric, whereas 
the laws for the consumption, the ability of the market to absorb that productive capacity just increases in the arithmetic in a linear way, in a, in a very uh, modest way. Production and consumption in the market, they follow different laws and capitalism cannot reconcile that. It is an unplanned chaotic system. It's an unplanned chaotic system because no, nobody, no capitalist knows what's going on. The system is lawful, but it's lawful like an anthill. No individual capitalist or capitalist government really knows what's going on. They're just producing stuff and hoping that someone somewhere is going to buy it. That, uh, yeah, that there is a market for their stuff, but they've got no idea. It's an unplanned, chaotic, anarchic system, right? And, and that's why you get this crash. In fact, actually one way that they can extend the market is credit, is debt. Credit, so if you allow businesses to go into debt, governments to go into debt, workers, individuals to go into debt, well, yeah, for a period that will boost the market. That will boost the market because now people have suddenly got money that they didn't previously have and they could buy stuff with it. Great. But it actually gives you this kind of wily coyote phenomena that the uh, production has gone way beyond the ability of society to uh, consume. And when I say consume, it doesn't mean that people don't need food, don't need clothing, don't need housing, don't need uh, all the necessities of life. Of course people need them. But capitalism doesn't care about what people need. They care, capitalism cares about what people can pay for, right? So uh, the ability of society to absorb and uh, pay for these things has been reached, but due to credit, the whole system gets extended. So it's, yeah, it's Wiley Coyote running off a cliff and it can keep running as long as you're getting that uh, credit. You know, getting that debt until eventually people the the the, the coyote looks down and there's no ground beneath his feet and falls even further than it was going to fall otherwise and guess what now there's debt repayments right so this this is one of the systems this, the situations we're in now massive 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 debt they've advanced massive debt in order to try and uh, stimulate the economy, get out of crisis. I see most of that debt went to uh, government handouts to corporations, right? Uh, right-wing uh, politicians are blaming the CERN, right? The, the, uh, the $2,000 uh, subsistence payment during COVID. Well, the reality is that the payments to workers were only about 10% of all of the COVID relief. Overwhelmingly, it was you know, uh, interest-free or forgivable loans. It was uh, rent forgiveness for businesses. It was uh, wage subsidies for businesses, massive handouts to, to already profitable corporations. That's what caused the massive debt, right? And, uh, but it, eventually these things have to be paid back. It all has to be paid back. So it, this, is, this is, again, 
one way, they get out of crisis, it just makes the crisis worse. Down the rod. Let me take a swig of water. So, um, that's the base. That, so that's the basic Marxist definition. Uh, Marxist definition of economic crisis explanation: the crisis, the capitalist crisis over production. But there's a few other ideas out there that I should uh, uh, get to. Uh, one of which I, I, I deal with it very briefly because uh, I, I don't know whether there is any sort of people who've studied the tendency of rate of profit to fall. Is hands up if anybody uh, has heard of that before? Very few. So I will, I will deal with it very, very briefly then. Uh, in some uh, academic uh, Marxian circles, uh, this, this is a, a hot topic of debate, the, the rate of profit to fall. And, uh, and, and this is a, an idea that Marx did develop, he did analyse, that as, as well as the crisis of overproduction, as, uh, as production develops, uh, the rate of profit falls in, in capitalist society because uh, the profits come from surplus value. Surplus value comes from, from human labour. The more the capitalist invests in means of production, machinery, in Marxist terminology, constant capital, the more they invest in machinery, there's more... The balance between human labour and machinery favours machinery. And because profits come from human labour, from surplus value, then the rate of profit tends to fall the more there's an investment in machinery. And you can see it's actually the same input as the crisis of overproduction. Because the more you invest in machinery, the more there's productive capacity, the more there is overproduction. The more you invest in machinery, the more the capitalists invest in machinery, the fewer workers there are working, the less room there is for surplus value and uh, the rate of profit falls. So, th so it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a phenomenon that happens, but Marx also called it a tendency to the rate of profit to fall. And detailed, actually I, I uh, did a, uh, a reading group on uh, capital Volume 3, which details the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And, and we went through the, the, the chapters on this. And Marx details about 20 to 30 countervailing tendencies that mitigates it. Uh, one thing that really mitigates the, the rate of profit falling is the hyper-exploitation of the working class. Right? So if, for example production in China, where you've got a hyper, hyper, hyper exploited working class, that actually serves to increase the rate of profit because it decreases the amount going to workers and increases the surplus value to the bosses. So while it does exist, it's just a tendency that occurs over long periods and it doesn't explain the approximately 10-year boom slump cycle. Right. And even when the rate of profit is low, there is still profit. So there's not actually a crisis. Anyway, uh, as doesn't seem to be a huge interest in the crowd for that question, 
I didn't know whether we were going to get some uh, uh, Marxian PhD students in the crowd. It sometimes happens, uh, and it's become the point of debate. Uh, but I thought I'd put a brief comment uh, in the, uh, the discussion that uh, while it is a factor in the generalized crisis, it really isn't the cause of crisis. It's not overproduction, which is the fundamental cause. Now, probably a sort of a more common uh, idea out there that you might be associated with is those are reformist ideas associated with John Maynard Keynes. This is the classic, these are the classical ideas of social democracy or even uh, liberalism in the post-war period that capitalism had its, I don't know if it's still the largest crisis in the history in the Great Depression, it may still be the largest, uh, but uh, present crises are challenging it for that uh, banner headline. But uh, the, the crisis of 1929 to, and, then through, and then the Depression through the 1930s, that, that was a classical crisis of production, uh, exacerbated by speculation, the stock market, and the property market. But that had all been built up by laissez-faire, you know, no state intervention, just let the invisible hand of the market sort everything out. And the invisible hand of the market made uh, millions and millions and millions of people unemployed and destitute and homeless. Uh, that, that's what happened then. And so a liberal economist, John Maynard Keynes, uh, not a socialist by any means, came up with this idea that crisis occurs because the market is too restricted, right? So I explained the Marxist idea of overproduction, whereas if, if you could simplify it, Keynes' idea is that the crisis comes from underconsumption, not overproduction. That the market isn't enough to uh, actually uh, to buy everything back, so you should artificially boost the market through state expenditure. Right. This is so, and this is in recent periods has been rejected by most uh, capitalist governments. Although in the present crisis, it seems like they're going back to it a bit. Uh, but prior, uh, definitely since the sort of nineteen seventies, you had. Uh, uh, Milton Friedman, the Chicago School, monetarism, uh, the, these ideas, neoliberalism, uh, that those are, so Keynes has been rejected for be, being inflationary. I'll explain how it's inflationary later. Uh, but uh, social democracy uh, has uh, sort of taken up these ideas of, of Keynes, even though he's not a socialist, liberal. And it's, yeah, this idea that you can use state expenditure to sort of pump up the market. So it's great. Okay, so you've got this excess capacity, government uh, goes into debt, builds a road, builds a dam, builds a bridge, builds a hospital, something like that. And that sucks up the surplus product. Seems great. It's a problem there. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Because you have to remember, 
the capitalist cycle of reinvestment, it's a close circle, right? There's supply and there's demand. There's production, there's the market, right? So if you're putting value into demand, if you're putting value into the market, where are you getting it from? Well, uh, traditionally, well, first of all, if you're going to be more left-wing, if you like, you tax the bosses, you tax the rich. Okay, we're in favour of that. We're not in favour of tax cuts for corporations and, uh, and the rich. So, all right, you tax the rich. But the rich, the capitalists, still control the economy. So what happens when you tax the capitalists? They don't like it. They don't like it at all. And they say, if you tax us, we're not investing. They go, I'm going to take my money down to Bolsonaro's Brazil or to sort of right-wing Colombia where they, the, the CIA helps paramilitaries kill trade unionists. I'm going to take it to a low-tax, low-regulation jurisdiction. That's where I'll take my money. That's where I'll take my capital. So if you tax the rich, they won't invest. Right? And, and then production collapses and everybody ends up unemployed. All right. So usually when you get reformist social democratic governments in power, they don't, they don't even have the guts to tax the rich. They, they don't even try. And, and so what's the next? Where else do they get the money? Well, they go into debt. All right, that can work for a period. So boost up the market for a period. And, and that's what happened uh, in the 1930s uh, and, and, and in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They went into debt. But again, as I explained, debt has to be paid back with interest. It's spending tomorrow's money today. So you boost the market today to shrink the market in the future. Eventually, it becomes unsustainable. Uh, okay, so, you, so at a point, okay, can't go into debt anymore. Actually, debt, uh, the big lenders, if your debt becomes too big, the big capitalist lenders, the big banks, World Bank, IMF, etc., they won't just give you money for free. They'll demand, you know, they'll demand austerity and, and other things before they give you any money, or they refuse to give you money, only give uh, countries money under ridiculous rates of interest. That's what happened to Greece. So eventually, what do they do? They start printing money. This used to be a laughable, ridiculous policy. Everybody talks about Weimar Republic Germany in the 1920s, people going around with wheelbarrows and marks. Well, and they say, oh no, we're never going to print money again. Well, they've been, they've been printing money for the last decade. During the, the height of the COVID crisis, I think it was, uh, was it uh, $5 billion a week uh, in Canada. And, and, and called, oh, but stop printing money. That is, that is a uh, impolite terminology. Uh, it's called quantitative easing, right? This is one of this, you know, sort of bourgeois, uh, politically correct language, you know, quantitative easing. Uh, collateral damage, such a nice word. Um, you know, uh, sort of like downsizing or right sizing. 
which actually means massively making people unemployed and ruin, ruining their lives. And, uh, and I hope you all know what collateral damage is, but uh, that's even worse. But uh, so the print money, what happens if you print money? You reduce the value of money. You reduce the value of money. That makes everything more expensive. This is the crisis we're in right now. We're in a debt crisis. We're in an inflation crisis. Inflation in Canada, uh, annual inflation last month was 7.7%. Hands up here who's getting a 7.7% wage increase. Really? Nobody's putting their hand up? Really? Oh, no. I'm surprised. I'm so surprised. Uh, so so every, every, if, if you're not getting a 7.7% wage increase, you are relatively poorer every year because they printed money and, and also went into debt and, uh, and this has reduced the value of money. Everything they're trying to get out of crisis makes the future crisis worse. And this is Keynesianism. That is reformism because it cannot solve the, the problem of capitalism. That it is a closed system. You know, you've got to take from, you take from production to boost up consumption, well, then production enters into crisis. You take, or you, you, or you do what's known as supply side, right wing economics. You take from the workers to give to the bosses, Robin Hood in reverse. And what that does is cuts the market. Here's the cause of capitalist crisis, right? Cannot be resolved by capitalist means. It is baked into this circle. It's baked into the reinvestment and the fact that the workers are not paid enough to buy back the products they have just made. So how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this? Uh, actually, uh, there's other ideas actually out there. Uh, uh, I guess the latest one, which I guess is a, uh, a derivation of uh, John Maynard Keynes's idea, is so-called modern monetary theory, MMT. Now, conveniently, MMT is also the same letters of magic money tree. It is making money out of nothing. The state just giving uh, uh, money to people. Well, it's the same thing as printing money. All right, I, I guess it's better to print money and give it to workers than printing money and give it to bosses and bankers. I guess that's better. But it doesn't solve the problem. It still reduces the value of money. And, and, and if it ends up, if any of these equations end up taking money from the capitalists, the capitalists won't invest. There's the problem. There's the fundamental crisis. Crisis. There's the fundamental contradiction. There is no way to reform yourself out of this. There is no reform of capitalism. In fact, yes, the reformists say that, oh, you know, you should pay the workers more. And that will solve the problem because that will increase the market. Now, I'm in favor of paying the workers more. But I'm, I'm afraid I agree with the capitalists when they say that will not solve the crisis. Right? The capitalists do know their system a certain amount. In fact, actually, when do wages go up? Wages go up historically 
at the height of a capitalist boom, right before the crisis. If higher wages solved uh, the crisis of capitalism, you, you, would never, you wouldn't get the crisis because wages go up right before the crisis. So again, if wages go up, that's actually taking away from the ability of the capitalist to reinvest. The problem here is private ownership in the means of production. There is no way to get out of that. There's absolutely no way to get out of that. Right? There is no sort of gentleman's bargain between labor and capital. Because the logic of capitalism is that capital needs to not just be reinvested, it needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Right? And if it doesn't get bigger, it enters into crisis. Right? Marx called capital a vampire that sucks living labor, dead labor that sucks living labor. And that vampire, that blood sack, that tick has to get a bigger and bigger blood sack. Excuse my slightly gross analogies. Uh, in my defense, Marx came up with it first. Um, but I don't think you brought up the tick. Right, that's me. Um, and uh, it has to get bigger and bigger and bigger or it comes into crisis. And if the workers get more, uh, it takes away from the bosses and the bosses want to invest. The, the cycle breaks down. So what do you do? There's no other option but to smash the cycle. That, that you cannot, you know, by the logic of the own capitalist system, there, there is no fair rate of exploitation of workers. There's no fair division. We do all the work. They are the parasites, right? All this value in society is created by working class people. What do the capitalists do? They just sit there and collect profit. Right? Oh, they're supposed to be the creative class, the capitalists. You know, the incredible creative people. Well, when society was in lockdown, who did we rely upon? Who did we rely upon? We relied, relied upon factory workers. We relied upon transit workers. We relied upon delivery workers, food service workers. We relied upon farmers. We, these, this is the productive class. It is the working class. And what did the bosses do? They sat in their mansions. In fact, in the first stage of COVID, when, when uh, this, Scientific investigation was hadn't really determined what was going on, and uh, the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, were afraid of their cleaners. And you had these sort of panicked messages of how do I use the washing machine? How do I use a vacuum cleaner? Right. Uh, this this was the state of the capitalists. Later on, they figured that you know their Mexican cleaner could still come in and look after them. Uh, and they weren't an imminent threat of catching a deadly virus. But it, it made the point, who is productive and who's the parasite? It's working class people are productive. We, the workers, don't need the capitalists. The capitalists need the workers. 
That's the logic. And we don't need an economy to create this you know, capital fund that is under the private control of a small group of parasites. It's not needed. It is not essential. Production for profit has is facing the end of its days. That's the situation. And how do, how do you solve it? Will you change the economy from production for profit, from capital that has to get bigger and bigger and bigger, to production for need, production for human needs? There is more than enough wealth in society, more and more enough wealth in society. In fact, in a country like Canada, a rich country like Canada, if you spread out the wealth evenly, then every family would be worth, I think, something like $400,000. Every single family. Now, I don't know about your family, uh, whether it's worth $400,000, but you know, most of the people I know, they're not worth $40,000, they're not worth $4,000, they're typically worth negative 40,000 student uh, loan debt or you know, negative $400,000 uh, mortgage debt, right? That's uh, the state of many working class families that uh, yeah, there's enough wealth in society if you put it under the control of the working class, the actual productive class, that you take it out of the hands of the capitalists, you expropriate it, you nationalize it, uh, you only give compensation on the basis of need, but most of them don't need it. Does Elon Musk need it? Does Bill Gates need it? Does Jeff Bezos need it? They're wasting money flying to the moon. I wouldn't feel so bad as long as they'd stay there. You know, uh, it's not a bad deal. Uh, and yeah, we've got social production. Everything's made by workers. But we've got private appropriation. Everything is consumed by the super rich, the billionaires, the parasites. It's unnecessary, it's illogical, and it doesn't even serve humanity. It doesn't serve humanity. Not only is it unjust, it's inefficient. It ends up in crisis. Now, hell, if society had 5-10% growth rate every year, whilst also creating billionaires, but everybody, you know, if everybody was... 10% wealthier every year at the same time as Elon Musk was 100% wealthier every year, people will be okay with that, right? It's That's still unjust, but people will be saying, hey, I'm better off even though uh, inequality is increasing. But people aren't better off. People are worse off. Unemployment's going up. Uh, wages are going down. Real wages going up, down. Inflation, everything's more inf- uh, expensive rent is insane. The rent is too damn high, right? That's the reality, and people are looking for solutions. People are looking for solutions, and the solution comes from revolutionary socialism, from Marxism. That you take it out of the hands of these inefficient and corrupt billionaires, and you put it production in the hands of working class people, and. You plan production. And actually, production is already planned. Amazon, Walmart, big corporations uh, use incredible 
data and statistics? Do you plan production? Do you think they use supply and demand and the profit motive within those corporations? No, it's a planned economy. It's a planned economy that's actually, I think Amazon and Walmart, if they were countries, they'd be like the eighth largest GDP, something like that. Uh, the difference is, is that's planned to increase profit, corporate profit rather than planned to meet human needs, to house people, to educate people, to feed people. There's a hunger epidemic, even when there's a super abundance of food. Again, food, they say, oh, you know, there's not enough food, people going hungry. There's enough food for everybody, everybody to get 3,400 calories a day. I don't know if you know much about calories, but if we all ate 3,400 a day, we'd be putting on a lot of weight, right? I think the estimate that they recommended is about 2,000 calories for women and 2,500 for men, right? So there's enough food. There's all production of food, but it's the illogical capitalist system. The trouble is, it's not because there's not, not enough production of food. It's because a quarter of humanity can't pay for that food, and so they go hungry. Right. And capitalism is finding that. Capitalism is finding that. Actually, Engels, uh, Karl Marx's uh, best mate, close collaborator, developed the idea of social murder. That people are allowed to die in the face of plenty for the maintenance of the profit motive. And so it's either die by starvation or malnutrition, die because they're on the street due to homelessness, die through mental health crises due to unemployment and general alienation and destitution. Capitalism kills millions every year. Lack of sanitation, lack of vaccines, you know, just a lack of care for workers during the pandemic. Millions and millions die every year with the social murder of capitalism. That's the logic of the system. And it's all unnecessary. It's all unnecessary. We could produce for need. Nationalize the commanding parts of the economy, put them under democratic workers' control, institute a socialist plan of production. It erases this contradiction. It erases the need for perpetually increasing profits. And, and that is the basis of a new society. That is what we are fighting for. That is why we call fight back part of the international Marxist tendency. And, and there are revolutionary movements across the globe. People are saying they're sick and tired of capitalism and they want something better. And this hasn't been the subject of this meeting on how we actually get there, but we're organizing. We are organizing. And in Canada, we're developing, we, we used to be incredibly small and, and we've got hundreds of organizers across Canada. We need to be thousands. We need to be tens and hundreds of thousands. So we're not there yet. I wouldn't say, I'm going to tell you that the revolution is going to happen tomorrow. It ain't. Good that it's not going to happen tomorrow because we're not ready. But capitalism cannot provide a solution. And in fact, it's not revolutionaries that create revolutions. It is the crisis of the system that creates revolutionary consciousness and forces people to fight back. 
what you can do, what you can do today is decide what are you doing to prepare for that day? Capitalism is a system of crisis, forces mass struggle sooner or later. It is happening in many countries. In Sri Lanka, there's a massive revolutionary movement. Uh, there's, there's Before COVID, there was massive waves of struggle in, in Latin America. Yeah, Ecuador, Colombia, uh, other countries, Bolivia, uh, a whole, whole series of struggles. And, and those struggles are going to come to more countries and more countries and more countries. What you can do today is join the struggle, join the organisation, get organised, so that when, those, when the workers start moving against the system as a whole, there is an organisation with the ideas and the analysis that we've just put forward today to give people those ideas to actually win, to actually put in place a new socialist society with production for me and not profit. And so I hope if you liked our talk, I hope you got educated. Uh, please ask all your questions, but above all, get active. Start organising, start building, so when the mass struggles come, we can help the workers to win. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, we're now gonna... Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.